Hello everyone and welcome back to EndoPod. If you are new here, hello, my name is Regina Sumarli and I am a third year medical student. We are excited to be back after our winter break and we hope you're excited for our cancer series episodes. To start off the series, we are going to be looking at pituitary tumors, which is an abnormal growth of tissues at the pituitary gland that lies behind the eyes. We are going to discuss what it is, its classifications, presentation, diagnosis, and treatments. So let's get started. Tumors of the pituitary gland are almost always benign, non-invading, and are usually curable. However, they can still cause problems by various means. First is excessive hormone production. Second is local effects of the tumor. As an example, a tumor can cause compression to surrounding tissues. Third is inadequate hormone production by the remaining pituitary gland. Pituitary tumors may also be associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1, which is a rare hereditary endocrine cancer syndrome characterized by tumors of the parathyroid gland, endocrine gastroenteropancreatic tract, and anterior pituitary. An example of the anterior pituitary tumors is prolactinomas. Pituitary tumors, or adenoma, account for 15% of primary intracranial tumors. Intracranial tumors is also called brain tumors. And there are approximately 80 cases per 100,000 individuals. And most patients with pituitary tumors are in their 30s to their 60s. We can classify pituitary tumors based on size and staining characteristics. However, those classifications have now been replaced by a more functional classification that involves electron microscopy and immunohistochemistry. This is because classifying the tumors based on size and staining has proven to be of no clinical value. We will touch a bit about the previous classification before discussing those that are used now. So, Based on size, we can classify pituitary tumors as microadenomas and macroadenomas. Microadenomas are those that have a diameter of less than 1 cm, and macroadenomas are those that have a diameter larger than 1 cm. Based on staining characteristics, they can be classified as chromophobe and chromophilic tumors. True to their name, chromophobic does not take up stains, and chromophilic does. Now that we have discussed a bit about the previous classification, let us now focus on the current classification using immunohistochemistry and electron microscopy. These techniques have identified hormonal production in many chromophobe adenomas, those that do not take up stains, enabling pathologists to identify the hormones produced. They also found out that many tumors produce more than one hormone. Scientists can now histologically determine the mutated form of P53, which suggests a fast-growing tumor. This is quite important because endocrinologic morbidity that is associated with pituitary tumor is dependent on the specific underproduction or overproduction of a hormone or hormones associated with the tumor. Based on their ability to secrete hormones, pituitary adenomas can either be classified as non-secretory pituitary adenomas or secretory pituitary adenomas. Non-secretory adenomas account for 15-45% to 45% of all pituitary adenomas. The less common type, the secretory pituitary adenomas can usually lead to hyperpituitarism, overactive pituitary gland, which will showcase varying symptoms of its own. 
knowing how we can classify the tumor is not enough. We also need to be aware of how it can present. The fact that these tumors can produce more than one hormone means that the presentation may vary significantly between individuals suffering from the condition, as different hormones account for different effects in the body. Patients can present with growth hormone deficiency, gonadotrophin deficiency, pyrotrophin deficiency, corticotrophin deficiency, and panhypopituitarism. Before we move on, let me explain a bit about these hormones and terms that I just mentioned. As the name suggests, growth hormones are crucial in growth during and even after puberty. Thyrotrophin is a chemical which will turn lead to production of thyroid hormone. Then corticotrophin is another chemical which will in turn lead to the production of cortisol. And the last but not the least, we have panhypopituitarism. Pen itself means all. This term suggests a condition in which production and secretion of all hormones by the pituitary gland is reduced. So let's go through these deficiencies one by one. First is growth hormone deficiency. Adults can present with increased rate of cardiovascular disease, obesity, reduced muscle strength and exercise capacity, and increased cholesterol. Infants can present with hypoglycemia or low level of blood glucose. Children can present with decreased height and growth rate. Next is gonadotrophin deficiency. These can present differently in men and women. In men, they can present with loss of sexual desire and impotence, unable to achieve an erection, as well as shrinking testes, but with normal sperm production. Women can present with loss of sexual desire and dyspareunia, which is when someone experiences pain during or after sexual intercourse. In chronic insufficiency, women can present with breast atrophy. Children can present with delayed or frank absence of puberty. Then now we have thyrotrophin deficiency. So this will present in the same way as hypothyroidism because remember, thyrotrophin will lead to the production of thyroid hormone. So it can lead to hypothyroidism, which is an underactive thyroid gland. Patient can present with malaise, weight gain, lack of energy, cold intolerance, and constipation. Patient can also present with corticotrophin deficiency. In this case, there will be deficiency of glucocorticoids and adrenal androgens. Initially, symptoms tend to be nonspecific. Severe adrenal insufficiency may present as a medical emergency, and it is important to treat them in a very timely manner. And then the last but not the least is panhypopituitarism. Patient can present with deficiency of several anterior pituitary hormones. This may occur in a slowly progressive fashion. Just now, we talk about deficiencies. But as we know, these pituitary tumors can also present with overproduction of various hormones, including prolactin, growth hormone, and cortisol. So let's go through them. In prolactin overproduction, patients can present with hypogonadism, which is a condition in which the sex gland is producing very little sex hormone. In hyperprolactinemia, usually there will be a raised level of prolactin in blood. Women can also present with absence of menstruation, galactoria, milky secretions of breast, which is not due to breastfeeding, and infertility. Whereas men can present with decreased sexual desire, impotence, and rarely galactoria. Next is growth hormone overproduction. 
Adults can present acromegaly, so they might come with enlarging hands and feet, coarse facial features, frontal bossing and prognatism, which is the extension of the lower jaw, and also further changes in the voice and hirsutism. Hirsutism is when there is an excessive growth of dark and coarse hair, and these can confirm the diagnosis. Respiratory difficulty and sleep apnea are fairly common. They can also present with things like cardiac complications due to acromegaly cardiomyopathy, which is when the, the heart enlarges. They can also experience carpal tunnel syndrome and various other symptoms associated with acromegaly. The last but not the least is cortisol overproduction, which can lead to Cushing's disease. Hence, patients will present with weight gain, centripetal obesity, moon facies, which is a specific type of face that can be found in hypercortisolism. They can also present with violet triae, easy bruciability, proximal myopathy, which is weakening of the proximal muscles, and psychiatric changes. Other possible effects include arterial hypertension, diabetes, cataracts, glaucoma, and osteoporosis. Glaucoma itself is a group of eye conditions that can damage optic nerve. So how do we diagnose this condition? Well, aside from thorough history and examinations, we can also utilize investigations to help confirm diagnosis. So how do we choose the right investigations? Well, it will depend on the symptoms that the patient presents with. So firstly, we'll go through what type of investigations we should do for an asymptomatic patient, so patient that has no symptom. Then, we will go over investigations used if we suspect underlying pathologies or condition. For asymptomatic patient, we want to screen for hormonal abnormalities. Hence, we should measure the basal serum prolactin level, thyroid function test or TFTs, 24-hour urine cortisol, insulin-like growth factor 1 or IGF-1, LH or the luteinizing hormone, or FSH, the follicle-stimulating hormone, and also testosterone in men and estradiol in women. What you want to do is endocrine studies for hormone hyposecretion and hypersecretion. Serum prolactin levels should be measured in any patient with a suspected cellar or supracellar mass. So that means it is a tumor or a mass that is located in the region of the pituitary gland within the skull. To check for prolactinoma, we need to do that. Prolactinoma itself is a benign tumor of the pituitary gland. If we suspect acromegaly, we would measure IV growth hormone level, serum IGF-1, or oral glucose tolerance test. This is to check for growth hormone level. In acromegaly, we will usually see an increase in this test result. Checking cortisol level can also be done if we suspect hypercortisolism or high level of cortisol. We can do this by using 24-hour urine for free cortisol, dexamethasone suppression test, standard low-dose dexamethasone, high-dose dexamethasone suppression, methyropone test, serum ACTH, and at times we can even use venous sampling of ACTH. Checking for glycoprotein can also be done. So what I mean by glycoprotein hormones here are TSH, FSH, and LH levels. We can do this if we suspect any imbalance of those hormones. TSH 
a steroid stimulating hormone and true to its name is a hormone which leads to the production of thyroid hormone. FSH is follicle stimulating hormone and LH is luteinizing hormone. Both LH and FSH are crucial for reproductive system health. Aside from those tests, imaging can also be done. This is for any mass or lesions that we suspect within a patient. Lateral skull x-ray may incidentally show enlargement of the fossa, but this is not definitive. We tend to go for MRI scan, which is the preferred imaging investigation, and it is superior to that of CT scanning. Visual field investigation can also be done. This is because there are common defects that can be found in these patients. The common defects are upper temporal quadrantanopia and bitemporal hemianopia. These terms sound complicated, but they just describe changes in which part of the visual field would be affected. Moving on to treatment. Now that we have covered quite a bit about pituitary tumors or pituitary adenoma, let's take a look at how to treat this condition. So how do we approach a patient? Well, first you would like to assess patients for any life-threatening and side-threatening complications. We will stabilize patients with acute hormonal imbalances and refer patients with severe vision loss or altered mental state to neurosurgery urgently. All patients should be referred to endocrinology and the choice of treatment will be based on the tumor type, size, and presence of symptoms. Initial treatment options include surgery, pharmacotherapy, and observation. For those with prolactinomas, the first-line treatment is pharmacotherapy, including hormone suppression. The choice of medication depends on the cause of the patient's symptoms. For those with secretory adenoma, except for prolactinoma, or those with symptomatic non-secretory adenoma, the first-line therapy is surgery. For those with asymptomatic macroprolactinoma or asymptomatic non-secretory adenoma, we tend to wait and see how it progresses. For refractory tumors, which are tumors that are persistently symptomatic due to hormone production or tumors that are still causing symptoms of mass effect despite previous management steps. We can consider repeat transphenoidal hypophysectomy, which is a surgical technique to remove tumors of pituitary gland. We can also go for medical management and or pituitary irradiation, which is aimed to prevent growth or regrowth to control hormonal hypersecretion of pituitary gland. It is important to achieve initial stabilization before starting definitive management. Patients may be acutely unwell secondary to hormonal alteration, and these should be treated aggressively prior to the definitive management, especially in those with secondary adrenal insufficiency, myxedema coma, or thyroid storm all of which are life-threatening conditions, which may lead to serious complications if not treated in a timely manner. In conclusion, pituitary tumors can present differently depending on the underlying pathology or underlying cause. Hence, it is important for clinicians to take a thorough history and examination. Investigations play a crucial role in diagnosing the condition, and the choice of investigation will vary depending on the clinical presentation of the patient. Similarly, Treatment of pituitary tumors differ depending on the cause, but in general, we use medication, surgery, transphenoidal hypophysectomy, radiation, and the wait-and-see approach. Thank you so much for listening to this week, 
and stay tuned for our next episode. Please do follow us on our Aberdeen University and Technology Society Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Please like and share this podcast with all your friends and colleagues. If you have any requests for future podcasts, please let us know. Thank you.